Good evening and welcome once again to another episode of the Friday Night Park Tale Special. I'm your host, Joyrider, coming to you live from the dollhouse in downtown Toronto with my feline co-hosts Chatty G, Silent J, and Floofmaster Toby. And this is episode 81, the second installment of Killer Tunes. This time last year, I got inspired by a true crime podcast called Morbid, and I did a show of songs that were either loved by serial killers, that inspired serial killers, or that serial killers listened to before or during a kill. It was incredibly grim, and I wasn't sure I wanted to do that again, even though I had more material I could have leaned on in part because I had clear recollections of how the research had impacted me, and in part too because the Morbid Girls did their own show on that exact theme about six months after mine, I decided to go with the more pedestrian theme this year, songs that were written about serial killers. There was even more material available, because I think many of us have a curiosity about what makes people kill. So, in order to narrow the field, I set up a few mental criteria. The song had to do more than just reference a killer, which cut out a lot of hip-hop. The killer couldn't be a mass murderer or someone who inspired others to kill, so bye bye Unabomber and Charlie Manson. And I wanted a broader range of genres than just metal acts or acts that focus specifically on murderers. Sorry, Macabre. And I want to start with the same caveats as last year. First of all, trigger warning. I won't be going into a lot of detail, but there will be mentions of violence, including sexual violence. If you don't want to hear that stuff, it's okay. Come back next week for the second part of our look at the life and work of Leonard Cohen. The other thing I want to make clear is that I do not intend to glorify murderers. My fascination with true crime lies primarily in the psychology of those who kill. I don't think what these people did was cool or good, and if I humanize them somewhat in the process of telling these stories, it's not intended to generate sympathy for them. They are awful people who did horrific things, full stop. And as the morbid girls remind us, we can feel sorry for the children that the murderers were without being any less disgusted or horrified by their acts as adults. I may not always name the victims, but that's not because I've forgotten that real people were murdered here. Believe me, in doing the research for this show, they were on my mind. Even if this year's show is a little easier than last year, I'm still going to need a palate cleanser after this one. The first song for the night breaks the rules a little in that the murderer is not a serial killer. He only killed one person, but the story is so wild that it begs to be included. Armin Muse was a member of a website for people with cannibalistic fetishes, and he posted an ad looking for someone who would be willing to be killed and eaten which presents some real issues around consent. Bernard Brandes responded that he would be willing, and so they got together. Muse and Brandes cut off Brandes' penis and tried to cook it and eat it. However, Brandes was drifting in and out of consciousness from the massive blood loss, and Armin stabbed him in the throat. The song, by Rammstein, is called Mein Tale, which translates to My Part, which is basically slang for my penis.
One of the things I hate most about Richard Ramirez is that women drool over him. He raped children! What's wrong with you? And even if he wasn't a rapist and a murderer who killed between 13 and 16 people, the man's personal hygiene was reputedly horrific. There's a reason why they had to fix all of his teeth before the trial. 
He was a gross, gross man, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and the world is better off without him. End of story. We've got two songs about Richard Ramirez tonight. The first one up is by Dismantled, and it's called Insect Head. second song about Richard Ramirez is an interesting collaboration between Miley Cyrus and Billy Idol. Apparently she thinks the world of him and he thought that was really cool and so they did this song together called Night Crawling.
I wasn't entirely convinced that I was going to include that one initially because I couldn't find any specific documentation that indicated they had intended it to be about Richard Ramirez, but Richard Ramirez was actually a big fan of Billy Idol, so them doing a song called Nightcrawling feels like it's probably tied somehow. Up next, we have a song about a man who was one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. He claimed to have killed approximately 80 people. 49 of those were confirmed, but he was only convicted of four murders. Most of his victims were teenage girls and young women, the youngest of whom was a 14-year-old girl named Wendy Stevens. She was only identified this year. Prior to that, from 1984 until January of 2021, she was only known as Bones 10 because of the condition of her remains when they were discovered. It's deeply tragic that nobody missed her when she ran away from Denver in 1983, but there's some small comfort that detectives never gave up on finding out who she was so that they could, quote, send her home. This next song by Nico Case is about Gary Ridgway and it's titled Deep Red Bells. Fun. 
To suffer long about you Does your soul cast about Like an old paper bag Past empty lots And early grass Shipman was always an arrogant fellow, but that arrogance was laser-focused by the illness and death of his mother Vera when he was 17. The doctor that came to his home to administer morphine to his mother was a non-lethal angel of mercy, and Shipman was attracted to that kind of power. He began working as a GP in 1974, and it appears that his first victim was an elderly woman in declining health named Ruth Hiley in May of that year. He was 29. In 1992, he opened his own practice so he would have less professional oversight, and this is where it became especially difficult to get a sense of the extent of his crimes because many of his victims were cremated. While there were those who were suspicious of Dr. Shipman during the 90s, it wasn't until 1998 when he killed the town's former mayor after having her sign a forged will that hackles really went up. Police exhumed former Mayor Grundy and found a lethal dose of diamorphine in her body, Shipman's weapon of choice. At that point, he was busted. It's believed he killed 215 people, mostly elderly women, but that number could be as high as 250. He was convicted of 15 in total. Four years after his conviction, the night before his 58th birthday, he hung himself in his jail cell. Had he not tried to take Grundy's estate, he likely would have been able to keep going, but luckily for the town of Hyde, he got greedy. This is Porcupine Tree and their song Lips of Ashes. Thank you. 
I loathe it when people excuse the horrific actions, particularly of white men, as stemming from mental illness. 
Lots of people have mental health issues and never harm anyone. Chalking vile behavior up to mental illness lets the offender off the hook and villainizes harmless others. And calling an offender a monster allows us to ignore the circumstances that fertilize the soil in which murderers grow. In Richard Chase's case, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia early in his life, but his mother chose to wean him off his prescription meds. Psychiatric meds only work as long as you take them. You stop taking the meds, and the behavior comes back. For Chase, his many paranoias were frequently tied to ill health, or fears thereof, and the perceived need to drink blood in order to keep himself healthy. It didn't matter where the blood came from, only that it would sustain him. He started with animals, but eventually worked up to humans. He went on a murderous spree and was apprehended after that spree, and about a year after his conviction, he deliberately overdosed on prescription medications he'd been socking away over time. On the one hand, who knows who he could have been had he stayed on his meds. On the other hand, good riddance to bad rubbish. He violated the corpse of a toddler, and he can burn, for all I care. By Juju, this is House Sparrow. <laughs> Stole you, damn. 
Another serial killer I talked about last year is John Wayne Gacy Jr., who raped, tortured, and murdered at least 33 teenage boys and young men inside his ranch house in Cook County, Illinois, between 1972 and 1978. Depending on which report you read, between 26 and 29 victims were found in the crawl space under his home. Here, I have an update for you. While eight of the remains in the crawl space were not identified back in 1979, three have since been identified. In 2011, 19-year-old William Bundy was ID'd. In 2017, 16-year-old James Hackinson was ID'd. And just this week, another young man was identified using DNA from his tooth pulp. His name was Francis Wayne Alexander, and he would have been about 21 or 22 at the time of his death. That leaves five more to be identified. And Gacy? Still dead since 1994 by lethal injection. Rest in piss, shit clown. From Sufjan Stevens, this is John Wayne Casey Jr. Look beneath the floorboards 
Leave it to Sufjan Stevens to make a beautiful song out of something so horrific. Up next, we have another song about John Wayne Gacy Jr. This one is quite on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's by Fear Factory, and it's called Suffer Age.
it would have been really easy to do an entire show using nothing but death metal. I didn't want to do that, but I thought it was worthwhile to include one if only to highlight the complete opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the way people approach the subject matter. Jeffrey Dahmer is one of those killers that if you're into true crime, he's probably one of the first you read about. His mom had mental health issues, and they had to move a lot for his dad's work. And these things impacted the family, and especially Jeffrey, negatively. He became fascinated with dissections as a child and was an alcoholic by age 14, around the same time he realized that he was gay. By the time he was 16, these fascinations with dead bodies and men were fully entangled, and by his senior year, his classmates were speculating that one day he would snap and either kill himself or someone else. Adults noticed his behavior during this time, but nobody did anything about it, and Jeff continued to careen off the rails. His first victim, Stephen Hicks, fit the fantasy that Jeff had been entertaining for months, and while he wouldn't kill again after Stephen for almost 10 years, he went on to kill 16 more men and boys between 1987 and 1992, many of whom were black. He was kept in solitary for the first year of his incarceration, but in 1994, a fellow inmate beat him to death with a metal rod from some fitness equipment. The apartment building he committed most of his crimes in was demolished in 1992, and there had been plans to build a playground or a memorial garden, but nothing ever materialized. And as far as I know, the lot still remains empty. This is therapy's trigger inside.
have no updates for you on this next serial killer, though it is one that we talked about last year, Scottish-born Dennis Nielsen. He was active as a murderer between 1978 and 1983, and he was dubbed by some as the British Jeffrey Dahmer because of their shared interests in picking up men and boys for sex and murder. While Nielsen's early victims were disposed of by fire in the back garden, he later had to hide some of the remains in his apartment when he moved upstairs. The remains began to smell, and his neighbors started to complain, so he tried to flush the remains down the toilet. This backed up the sewage system to the house, and that's how he was discovered. Fifteen murders have been attributed to him, and his victims ranged in age from 14 to 30. Many were higher-risk victims, and one was actually a Canadian tourist. Nielsen died in 2018 and is still dead. This is the Swans killing for company.
for a small confession. In the pre-internet days, I mixed up the swans and the cranes. And boy, was I disappointed when I got an imported 7-inch by the swans and got it home and played it and realized, oh, this is an entirely different band. Oh, crap. Our next song brings us to what I thought would be possible update on a long-standing mystery, one that I touched on last year, but now I'm not entirely sure. After 51 years of not knowing, a group of independent cold case sleuths claim to have determined the identity of the Zodiac Killer. However, police who are actually assigned to the case are denying that the case has been solved, and the Snopes page on this goes into great detail to pick apart the casebreaker's position, refusing to even name the casebreaker's suspect. On the other hand, several family members of the accused, who died in 2018, say that it fits, and they believe their family member was the Zodiac. If they have a partial DNA profile from a stamp on one of the letters that the Zodiac sent to the press, 
and they have some family members at hand, it would seem to me that they could run a familial DNA profile, but who knows? Maybe that's something I already have in progress and can't talk about. I'll let you know next year, I guess. Until then, this is the Melvins and their song, Zodiac.
Time for another small confession. I had no idea that this next song was about Ted Bundy until last week. I hadn't heard the Bundy tapes or interviews, so I wouldn't have recognized the sample as being his voice. But given that Nothing's Shocking came out in 1988, and Bundy was on death row then, and would be executed in 1989, it all makes sense. Anyway, what can one really say about Ted Bundy? He was someone who understood how to charm and manipulate people, particularly girls and young women, and he used that to his advantage at least three dozen times. According to Wikipedia, a vial of his blood was found in an evidence vault in 2011, and a complete DNA profile was made and added to CODIS, so that if more information becomes available in any open cold cases that are suspected to be related to him, further testing can be done. Here's hoping that they too can close some cases and send the girls home. This is Jane's Addictions, Ted, just admit it.
of a certain age, I can never hear the end of that song without also hearing Diamanda Galas in my head. That little snippet of I Put a Spell on You that they combined with that in the Natural Born Killers soundtrack. Up next, we have a song about Ed Kemper. And Ed Kemper seems like the kind of guy who would be interesting to talk to were he not a terrifying murderer into necrophilia and cannibalism. While some people like to chalk his behavior up to his abusive mother, he was a messed up dude well before his parents separated, showing classic psychopathy through harm to animals as a child, and later through the murders of his grandparents, which he did, quote, just to see what it felt like. Kemper is also an example of how prison tends to be a toxic teaching ground for criminals. While he was a model prisoner during his incarceration for the murder of his grandparents, he learned from fellow inmates that it was best to kill a woman after raping her. After his release at age 21, he didn't quite adhere to that advice, choosing instead to kill them first. Kemper is still alive and has been denied parole at least 11 times to the relief of his living relatives. His lawyer says that Kemper is quite happy to live out the rest of his days in prison. And this is one time when I truly hope that a killer gets his wish. This is Seabound's murder. serving a life sentence since 1973 when at the age of 24 he murdered his mother then called police and confessed to having dismembered college co-eds for two years as well as cannibalizing and raping their headless bodies he killed her with a hammer in her sleep cut off her head and hands but then put her vocal cords in a garbage disposal and threw darts at her severed head. Can I trust you? Disneyland, why are you trying? 
I'd been a fan of Seabound for a long time and I had never heard that song before, but apparently it was from one of their very, very first EPs entitled White Nights. No K. Another killer I talked about last year is Peter Sutcliffe, who was better known as the Yorkshire Ripper. He claimed that the voice of God had sent him on a mission to kill sex workers. He was active between 75 and 1980 in West Yorkshire, England, and murdered 13 girls and women who were between the ages of 16 and 47. He began attacking sex workers in 1969 when he was 23, and was only captured after being arrested for driving with stolen license plates. During the course of that arrest, evidence was found in his car that connected him to the murders, and he confessed. In 1981, he was convicted of 13 murders and seven attempted murders. And here, again, I have an update for you. This time last year, for a first installment of Killer Tunes, Sutcliffe was still alive, but that is not the case anymore. He died November 13th of last year from the coronavirus. Thanks, COVID! This is Susie and the Banshees, Night Shift.
Albert Fish came by his mental illness honestly. A number of his relatives also had their struggles, but it seems that Albert was the only one whose illnesses culminated in murder. Born in the second half of the 1800s, he had a rough childhood, spending his early years in an orphanage where he said he came to enjoy being beaten. In the first decade of the 1900s, he began molesting young boys and got into a relationship that ended with him removing the penis of his partner. After that, he was left to raise his six children on his own, and he got into extreme self-abuse. Years later, after his arrest, over two dozen needles were found in his pelvis and perineum, all self-inserted. In the end, it was the murder of a young girl named Grace Budd that got him arrested and executed, though he insisted he had actually been intending to kidnap her brother Edward. The jury concluded that while Fish was clearly insane, he also needed to not be alive anymore for the things he had done and the things he might yet do if allowed to live. He died by electric chair in March of 1936. In the live broadcast of this show, I played a song here by Tyler, the creator, but I didn't realize that there was an anti-Asian slur in the first verse until I actually played it. And I was torn about leaving it in the recording, but after thinking about it, I decided I wanted to come back and edit it out completely. I don't want anybody to listen to that and be harmed by it, nor do I want people to think that I think that's okay. It's one thing when a black person is using the N-word in relation to fellow black people, but it's another thing entirely for someone to use a slur to refer to someone outside of their race. And that is really not the kind of thing that I want to project. I want to apologize, and in the future I am going to be much more careful about the material that I play for you, and that won't happen again. Instead, I'm going to play Green Jelly. This is Albert Fish Liverwurst.
hard. The Boston Strangler was active between 1962 and 1964, and during that time he's alleged to have killed 13 women. I say alleged because there's still some debate about the crimes and their perpetrator. The man who confessed to the crimes was named Albert DeSalvo, and while there would eventually be DNA that would link DeSalvo to Mary Sullivan's murder, there are some major issues that indicate that there was likely more than one person responsible for those 13 murders. Firstly, the victim profile was all over the place. Eight of the women were over 50, with six of those eight being over 60. And the other five were under 25, the youngest being 19. The methods in which these women were murdered was also inconsistent with an FBI profiler saying that to have all of these methods in one person is nigh incomprehensible. And DeSalvo even got some of the details wrong in his confession, but police wanted to close the case and DeSalvo wanted to be famous. So it's possible that they were willing to overlook these things to get the job done. It's been hypothesized that DeSalvo's cellmate, George Nassar, was the one who actually did the bulk of the killings and fed DeSalvo the details for his confession. And a psychiatrist who'd worked with them both concurred that Nassar fit the psychological profile more accurately than DeSalvo. DeSalvo was murdered in prison in 1973, and Nassar is still alive, still denying that he had anything to do with the murders, saying that these accusations have wrecked his chances for parole. If the cancer he has hasn't killed him by then, he'll be 90 this coming New Year's Day. This is the Rolling Stones and their song, Midnight Rambler. Come on. 
the knife sharpened, tiptoed. Oh, just that shooting dead, brain bell jangling. Our second last killer for the night is a threefer of suckitude, and one that I wish I had an update on for you. The Moore's murders were committed by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley between July of 1963 and October of 1965 in and around Manchester, England. I talked about them last year, and their victims were five children, Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey, and Edward Evans, all aged between 10 and 17, at least four of whom were sexually assaulted. They were called the Moors murders because Brady and Hindley buried their victims out on the Saddleworth Moors. Keith Bennett's body was never found, but is believed to still be out on the Moors. I said threefer because the band in question is the Smiths, led by racist dirtbag Morrissey. But it's not Johnny Marr's fault his bandmate turned out to be a turd, so the Smiths get a pass tonight. This is The Smiths Suffer Little Children. Over the moor, take me to the moor, dig a shallow grave. And I'll lay me down over the moor Take me to the moor Dig a shallow grave And I'll lay me down Leslie Ann and your pretty white beads Oh John, you'll never be a man And you'll never see your home again Oh Manchester to answer for Edward see those alluring lights tonight will be your very 
inshallah, we will never have to hear Morrissey's voice ever again on this show. And yes, it was very deliberate that I used the Arabic for that. Our last killer for the night is Ed Gein, elements of whose story have been incorporated into many horror movies, including the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silence of the Lambs, and of course, Psycho. He had a toxic, enmeshed relationship with his aggressively religious mother, who warned him that all women were dirty and sinful, except for her, and his father was an alcoholic who couldn't keep it together. After his father died in 1940, his brother Henry began to break away from their mother, voicing concern for Ed and criticisms of her. Ed was shocked by this, and not long after, Henry died mysteriously in an apparent brush fire. His sainted mother died the following year after two separate heart attacks, two days before his 40th birthday. The rest of his story has become the stuff of legend, his many nighttime visits to cemeteries and the garments and objects he built with the remains he stole from those graves, in particular the lady suit he made with the goal, ostensibly, literally, of crawling into his mother's skin. He was declared legally insane in 1957 and spent the rest of his life in mental hospitals, dying at 77 of respiratory failure secondary to lung cancer, proving that sometimes cancer does get it right. We have three songs about Ed Gein, and this first one I had to include simply because it's not an artist that you would expect this sort of thing from. First up, we've got Skinned by Blind Melon. Next, we have a song by Bastille, who I have played a number of different times on this show. This is their song, No Angels, and it's interesting because it juxtaposes both 
TLC's No Scrubs with samples from Psycho. This is Bastille's No Angels featuring Ella. Well, I run the office and uh, tend the cabins and grounds and, and do little uh, errands for my mother. The ones she allows I might be capable of doing. And you go out with friends? Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother.
Our last song for the night was actually one of the first songs about a serial killer that I ever heard, with the exception of The Boxes Sent to Me. But maybe I'll play that for you next year. From Seasons in the Abyss, this is Slayer's Dead Skin Mask.
And because I am a grown-ass adult with the internet, I can tell you the recording at the end of the song that sounds like a little kid was actually a friend of the band named Matt Polish who came in to do the voice. Tom Araya told him to pretend he was a little kid who didn't want to play anymore, who wanted to go home. And they took that recording and pitched it up to make it really sound like a little kid. And Tom Araya felt that it came out pretty good, and I think so too. But that, my friends, is the end of our show for tonight. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's always a pleasure to have you share some of your week with me. If you like what I do, consider supporting the show by tossing a coin to your DJ at K o-fi.com forward slash djoywriter your tips go to new tunes for future episodes you can follow the show on facebook at the friday night parkdale special all one word and you can follow me on twitter and instagram and facebook at djoywriter i do have a new website but the web page address is stupid long and i really need to just pony up the five bucks a month for a domain name but until then I'm always open to new show ideas, and those are great places to drop your suggestions. I look forward to hearing them. As always, be well and stay safe. And don't eat the blue lollipop, because Elmer the Safety Elephant always said that was the one that had the razor blade in it. We'll see you next week. <laughs>